G'day humans, welcome to instalment number two of my collaboration with the University of Technology, Sydney. Uh, this is a series called Permission to Think. It's a, an, a public event speaker series of online conversations. Uh, the man behind this is Professor Alan Davison, who's the Dean of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. I am a professional fellow there, which basically just means that I have these fascinating conversations with interesting people who the university and I decide are worth speaking to in this series, which tries to bring intellectuals and institu into the institution who are not necessarily predictably university-ish and who don't play into the sort of thought bubbles that a lot of educational institutions are currently captured by. And today's guest doesn't in every way you could possibly want her, her to, not, to not be predictable. She's, she's not a knee-jerk reactionary who is anti-Islam. She is not a pandering left-winger who's jumping at shadows and terrified of criticising Islam. She knows what she's talking about because she's a deeply wise and experienced person. Dr. Ella Manea is an associate professor at the Institute of Political Science at the University of Zurich in Switzerland. And she's a Yemeni originally, who's a specialist in the Middle East and North Africa, and is essentially an expert in the ways, well, among many other things with regard to Islam, but in particular, of particular interest to me is her expertise in the ways in which Western countries sort of have gone limp in defending human rights when it comes to anything to do with Islam. And not just abroad, you know, we all know the bombast of the George W. Bush administration, for example, trying to spread human rights across the Middle East to uh, mixed success, shall we say? Uh, not just that, but the failure to actually stand up for the human rights of our own citizens who happen to be Muslims in the West, in particular, citizens like young girls in Muslim communities who Elam is deeply concerned about. And this is not a, as I say, a predictable reactionary kind of knee-jerk bombast. This is not Muslim bashing in any way, shape or form. This is, you know, the community from which Elam herself comes. So I won't keep blathering on about this. Suffice it to say that this is well, well, well worth your time and listening to because it's so rare to find someone who has such a nuanced and balanced perspective on one of the most complicated culture war issues of our time. Please enjoy the second instalment of Permission to Think. If you want to find out more about it, just Google UTS Permission to Think. You'll find the landing page. You'll find past episodes like the one that I did with Peter Bogosian and increasing uh, episodes into the future as well. This will be an ongoing series and the episodes will drop roughly monthly. In the meantime, enjoy this convo with the one and only Dr. Elam Manaya. where you grew up and what that was like? You could call me a mixed salad of some sort. Okay, so uh, I was born in Egypt. My father comes from uh, Yemen. My mother has Egyptian roots. It's a complex story, but Egypt is the focus here. And um, due to my father's diplomatic um, career, we've been, I've been 
I've been raised in eight countries, I put it this way, including Egypt, Yemen, uh, Iran, Morocco, Kuwait, Germany in my early childhood, and then the United States, and then I settled here in Switzerland 27 years ago, and my husband is Swiss. So right now I'm Swiss, Yemeni. So I'm a mixed salad. Do you feel you have roots anywhere? Do you have roots in Switzerland now after 27 years? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, I certainly have roots here in Switzerland. I live in this street, the same street, um, since tw 27 years. And it's... Um, I just came back from Egypt and Turkey. But when I left Egypt, I also felt I left part of me there. So do I, feel, do I have roots? I have roots here in Switzerland but I have roots also in the Middle East and specifically in Egypt and in Yemen. Mm. You're feeling something there when you're talking about that. Is that the, the smells and the sights and the sounds and the memories and the evocative things of Egypt from your youth? When you, when you grow up, uh, the sounds, the smells, as you said, um, the streets, and even the, 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 the Adhan uh, call um, in Egypt, it's done in a very beautiful, um, in a melody uh, uh, form. Um, it's, you have different forms of Adhan in Yemen. In certain areas, it wasn't exactly uh, very pleasant. But these sounds, um, the smells, the culture, yeah, I miss that. I really miss mm. that. I'll put it this way. What did you make of that country you were growing up in? What did you make of Egypt at the time? Well, the, the problem is basically I've been in different countries uh, and Egypt was always a stop over every summer I've been there because of my grandmother. And I grew up also, um, I have several years there. What do I make of it? Um, It's part of me. Egypt is part of me. Yemen is part of me. Yemen is also part of me. And, and the fact that it's going through this civil war right now is very painful, I have to put it this way. But I try to deal with that pain in, that I tr in, in being constructive and doing something about it. That is writing a, a research book about the roots of the conflict in Yemen. Um, when it comes to Egypt, as I said, just it's also home. It's also home for me. But that doesn't mean that, you know, if you think about it, people think if you lived in different countries, you don't have roots. I do have roots. But um, I learned over time that at the end of the day, it's the human that counts. And I've, I've met everywhere, um, humans, persons, where you could uh, connect with, where you can transcend all of these cultural, religious um, differences. And from that perspective, perspective, you can call me a global nomad as well. Mm. 
I'm asking only because I'm interested in whether or not people have diverged from their roots or whether their intellectual life has taken them in interesting other other places that gives them a perspective on the things that they took for granted when they grew up. How do you look at Egypt? How do you look at the Muslim and Arab world from the, the perspective of where you are today? Yes, and that's, that's a very good question, uh, specifically um, because I, under, I understand as well the importance of the rights that I have here in, in Switzerland. I've been here 26 years. Um, um, I enjoy um, a direct democracy that allows me um, to decide with my fellow citizens on the issues that matter here in Switzerland. I have um, certain rights as a woman, um, and uh, please understand me, Switzerland um, was a little bit late when it uh, comes to women's rights. Uh, so we only had the right to vote in 1971. Um, the family law that used to give the husband um, a form of guardianship uh, changed in 1988. And if you think about that, so you understand that these were hard-won rights. Women really, women with men, they fought really hard for these rights. And um, coming from Yemen, and here I have to basically say, coming from Yemen, I know how difficult the situation for women is. From first-hand experience, from family uh, context, uh, and there was a period when I understood um, emotionally, I'll put it this way, emotionally, that there's something wrong with the manner by which um, uh, we have, we experience life as women within that context, in different contexts, not only in, uh, in Yemen. It was only when I started to research that um, with field work, it was only when I started to look at the laws, when I realized, no, this is systematic. This is systematic. And I have to thank my mentor and my um, um, he, he actually was my supervisor when I did my PhD. I started with the, the Arabian Peninsula, um, Yemen. Uh, regional politics, internal politics. But when I wanted to do my postdoctoral thesis, because in the German system, you need uh, to have a postdoctoral thesis to be a professor, a full professor. Um, he insisted that I talk about um, the gender dimension. And I still remember at that time, I was so angry inside of me at him. I was thinking, hey, come on, this is uh, really typical. Just like you just want basically pull me in that uh, discussion um, about gender, blah, 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 from an, a Western perspective. And I'm so thankful for him. I'm really grateful for him. Because um, if it wasn't for that insistence, and if it wasn't for the fellowship that I got, the money that I got that allowed me to travel and to look closer as a political scientist, but at these, this specific dimension, I don't think I would have been sitting with you today. 
it was it was it was like an opening it was it was as if i realized okay what you felt in fact you can um, address in a rational manner because it's not only patriarchal structure that we're talking about we're talking also um, <clears throat> sorry we're talking also about um, how the system is structured in a manner that makes that makes the life of women uh, hard that makes a woman minor the laws are telling me that the laws the family laws are telling me that because on a constitutional uh, level you see men and women are equal before the law go to the family laws and you see a different picture but there is a political function for that there is a political function for that and that, that political function was for me like the aha moment and um, so I'm very thankful to my professor. What is the political function of that inequality? If you look at the family laws in all Middle Eastern countries, and I'm specifically talking about Arab Middle Eastern countries with the exception of Tunisia, you will see that the family laws are based on your religious identity. So if you're Christian, you will have religious family law. Um, if I'm Muslim, I will have um, a Muslim family law. But while that is the case, this plural, this legal pluralism, that's the expression, each group has its own family uh, law, prohibits and prevents the creation of a national um, identity. Because at the end of the day, I cannot marry you because you're Christian. These laws makes it difficult to marry across these religious, but also tribal lines, uh, sectarian lines. And that plays directly to the traditional base of power uh, of the regimes. They, in a way, depend on the division of society in order to be the arbiter. And that political function was really, for me, uh, very interesting. Very it's interesting. Fu it, it is so, funny. It, it, it's funny, in a sense, Alan, that you've ended up in Switzerland, which of all of the rich Western democracies is one of the most balkanized in that sense, right? It has a French bit and it has an Italian bit and it has a German, a German bit and everybody gets along, but they don't have different rules or different laws. Has that given you any insight into the way that, se that sectarianism operates in a democracy versus in the Middle East? It's a very interesting question because Switzerland is really interesting in this respect. And I have to say, um, it also gave me... Um, insights of how difficult the questions that I'm raising can be. Um, I just talked about family laws that makes it, I mean, legally, I cannot marry across my uh, religious line. As a Muslim, I cannot marry a, a, um, a Christian. I don't have civil law. We don't have civil law uh, for marriage. Here in Switzerland, 
you didn't have laws that prevented you from marrying across these uh, religious lines. If you were Christian, Protestant or Christian Catholic, you don't have that. But 50 years ago, just yesterday, we had lunch, my husband and I, with, the, with, with, the, with two with the partner, with two partners, do you say partners? Two partners. Um, friends who are, you mean a couple, um, with a couple? With a couple, exactly, with a couple. And they were also explaining their background as Catholics, Swiss Catholics, and how it was, it wasn't possible. It was, in fact, if you dared to marry across your religious sectarian lines between Catholic and Protestant, you would lose uh, your support of the family. You would be expelled from your own um, village. So these questions, even from a um, society perspective, can be very hard. And I understand how difficult that can be. And now... I was just going to ask you about your opposition to uh, to proposals in Switzerland and in Western democracies to introduce greater sectarianism in in the justice system and proposals to create alternatives to the conventional liberal democratic justice system by having some Sharia courts for Muslim minorities in the West. And you came out and you were very vocal in writing against that. Can you give us some background on why? Yes, because I think I think this is one, one of the issues that really made me decide to make a stand. I'll put it this way. I really had to make uh, to take a stand because I just I'll tell you what, when this discussion started, it started when I just came back from my field work and I finished the research for this post um, doctorate thesis. It was published in a book um, with the name The Arab State and Women's Right, The Tribe of Authoritarian Governments. And you come back to Switzerland and then you hear um, these suggestions by really colleagues that I respect, where they basically say, maybe we should give a certain kind of space for Muslim laws. And the thing is for me, with all due respect, we're talking here about religious laws and religious laws that were um, promulgated between the 7th and 10th century. These are laws that were shaped during a period, a historical period, where slavery was an accepted um, institution, where women uh, were not considered as equal. In fact, they were considered as um, minors in perpetual need of um, guardianship, male guardianship. And you come and you tell me uh, in the name of religious diversity, we should allow religious laws that violates the dignity and rights of women um, in a context where we actually fought hard to change the laws that um, made it, uh, made guardianship, male, male guardianship um, enshrined. Um, I had to take a stand and demand that we look closer at these laws. What are we asking for here? Because at the end of the day, what these demands will lead to 
is um, legitimization of systematic discrimination against women and children in the name of religious freedom, in the name of religious freedom. And, and of course, uh, the, the proponents of these, of these alternative courts would never say that they do that. They would say this is a way of empowering uh, traditionally oppressed religious minorities to be able to conduct their affairs in a way that's consistent with their deep, most deeply held uh, beliefs, even if that bumps up against, as you say, our liberal democratic conception of the rights of women and gays and whoever else it might be who might find themselves ensnared in this parallel justice system. One place where such a, an experiment has been tried is in the UK. How has it gone there? And that, that exa exactly, that was the point where I realized uh, Britain has been with its Sharia councils and Muslim arbitration tribunals, um, Britain has been used as a positive example when it concerns um, such, such, such models. So I decided to go um, to the UK and research this um, phenomenon within its social context, because I thought, okay, I'm a researcher. Uh, maybe the, uh, the Islamic law that is being implemented in the Middle Eastern context, in the manner by which um, it shaped the family laws, maybe that has to do with the context of the Middle East. Look at that context within the UK, how it's being implemented. And the outcome was women in Sharia law, the impact of legal pluralism in the UK. And with all due respect, I've seen a situation, laws, because if you look at family laws, I said at the beginning of our discussion, there is an exception and that is Tunisia. Tunisia has a family law, civil law, inspired uh, of an enlightened um, kind of reading uh, of jurisprudence, where the idea... Why, why Tunisia? But I don't want to go down a total rabbit hole. Why Tunisia and not Algeria or not you know, Egypt? Tunisia, Tunisia is, um, in fact, a very important case because of the, its state formation. Look at the history of this country. And you see a state that has a long history of central authority, a long history of constitutional development. In fact, I mean, it's in the 18th century that this country uh, inspired even the Ottoman Empire in terms of providing basic rights to its citizens. Um, it was one of the first countries that abolished slavery. And it was a development that came from within, from within Tunisia. And it's um, maybe there is also a factor that it is uh, a country that it, it's not really divided uh, in the manner that you see in Yemen. So the outcome, if you may say, of the Arab Spring uh, in Yemen and in Tunisia, it's no surprise that Yemen disintegrated into civil war and even a collapse of its central state, whereas uh, Tunisia is still holding, despite the difficulties, it's a very difficult um, situation um, that politically and economically the country is going uh, through, but it stands as um, an example. And add to that, that when it was, I mean, since the colonial um, control of France 
uh, if you compare how it controlled Algeria and Tunisia, you see huge differences. In Algeria, it really deliberately tried to divide the society. In Tunisia, it learned from the mistakes because it led to war. It led to a uh, huge uh, bloodshed. In Tunisia, it learned from these mistakes and did not try to destroy the whole kind of like basis, central and administrative um, basis there. In fact, it built on it. And it mm. did not try to problematize family law. So if you look at this, what happened in Tunisia, in a way, the post-colonial state came uh, with much to start with. It has to do with the history of the country itself. Um, it has to do with the, with the different uh, method of the colonial power that controlled the country for a certain period. And then you have the leadership and the vision of the president who came after independence, Burqiba, and this president had the vision that on the one hand, we need separation between state and religion in order to have a state that is neutral to its own, uh, to its citizens. But on the other hand, we need a different family law, a family law that changed also the social structure because from his perspective, um, the man wasn't a feminist. This is very important. What he was interested in, he was telling us, um, I need a modern state. A modern state needs husband and wife and two children, not husband and four wives and several, I don't know how many uh, children. So the family law was a key uh, tool for him to change that social structure. And when he came there was already development from the legal perspective, Muslim legal perspective, where they came also with their own interpretation that there is nothing wrong of saying uh, that a woman can be her own um, um, guardian. Uh, okay, you, so we've, can... we, we, we have carved out uh, Tunisia as the, as the exception to the rule of family law dominating in these countries. So then when you, having grown up in these, in these cultures, these societies, these political systems, go to the UK to look at the way that it's being implemented there, what do you, for a start, just explain to people who aren't familiar with the British experiment, what a, a Sharia court in the UK even is or what it presides over. Um, you have two forms um, of application of Islamic law in the UK. The one uh, with um, the first type is through what is called Sharia councils. Um, the numbers uh, varies between 35 to 80, but you have really very um, famous councils like the one in Lytton, the other one in Birmingham, in these councils, you have a kind um, um, you have self-appointed sheikhs who reside on these court, courts, and they decide um, when it comes to family um, affairs of Muslim couples. When it comes to the Sharia councils, the majority um, of those who uh, go to these councils are women, women seeking divorce. 
Um, Islamic law allows the husband to divorce um, his wife with uttering three words. Um, talak, talak, talak. That means uh, divorce, divorce. One word three times. Divorce, divorce, divorce. Done. And, and you have uh, a life, um, a marriage uh, ending. So I'm sure it's that easy for the women as well, right? Yes. And on the other hand, women, um, either they have the right, um, either they can get a divorce if their husband agrees. Um, um, you know, um, similarly in the Jewish uh, uh, law, um, for a woman to be able to get a divorce, she needs to get from her husband. Also that he also gives her, uh, he gives her uh, the divorce um, in a get. But that only with his permission. So that's the first thing. The second thing, if she can prove harm, he hits her, he drinks, uh, he doesn't sleep with her for six months, things like that, okay? Or uh, with um, when she gives up her financial rights written in the marriage contract. And in that case, uh, she can get um, a divorce from a judge, uh, usually. It's called khula. The problem is basically, if you look at the type of Islamic law that is being implemented, that's why I mentioned Tunisia. That's why I mentioned Tunisia. Um, women, they go to these courts because they need uh, a religious divorce. This has to do with the fact that uh, some of them think from a religious point of view, they need to have um, uh, a religious divorce to be really a divorce. But the main issue, in fact, has to do with the lack of registration of religious marriages. You have many studies, many surveys that showed that at least 61% of Muslim, British Muslim marriages are not conducted, are not registered. They're done religiously. So women, when they end up, and usually the majority of them, they do not know that the British law does not recognize uh, these marriages. Uh, you have to register it. Uh, here in Switzerland, we have a different situation where uh, first I have to marry a civil marriage in order for me to be able to marry uh, mm -hmm. a religious marriage. That's not the case. And there are right now, this is what is taking place in Britain, where there, there is a campaign to change the laws because the laws only consider the marriages of Christian um, uh, Jews and Quebec. Um, these... Um, Quakers, I'm sorry, and Quakers, these marriages are recognized once conducted religiously. They are also registered uh, automatically. The campaigns right now are pushing for uh, changing that to include Muslim and Hindu uh, and other minorities marriages. So to go back to the point, they find themselves um, in marriages not recognized by British law, they need a divorce. They have to go to these uh, Sharia councils. 
The Sharia councils, unfortunately, the type of Islamic law they are applying is not the Tunisian one. The Tunisian one will tell you, you don't need to go to a Sharia court. You need to go to a civil court to get a divorce. And there you will divide your asset equally according to the law. No, what they do is they, they take the Yemeni family law, the one that tells you, I cannot leave the house without the permission of my husband. I have to fulfill his sexual desires and not the other way. That's written in the law. That's written in the law. And I even with the khula option, the one that I mentioned before, where I have to give up my financial assets and rights in order to get a divorce without his permission, that family law tells us, no, um, the husband has to say yes to that divorce. And you end up in a situation, as I said, um, I was surprised to go to the UK and to see a context that reminded me very much with what I've seen uh, in a Yemeni context. In fact, so I mean, you, you've, made the, you've made the point in the past that some of these interpretations of law go even further than the law does in the home countries of the people yes. from which they came, that there might be British Pakistanis who are being ruled on in British Sharia courts using a more extreme version of Sharia law than exists in Pakistan itself. And, and that shows you a certain dimension that we seem to forget that very often, specifically, if a certain communities start to close and um, in, in a new home country, they often, they can often be more conservative than their own um, citizens from their home, original home countries. And I've seen that. I've seen how in Egypt, for instance, every time I go to Egypt, I'm so surprised of how things are developing and going in a direction where you see even questions that some here um, may not even dare to question uh, are being posed in Egypt, but not mm. here. Mm. And when yes, it my, comes... My, my, step my step-grandfather was from Paris and he moved to Australia and uh, he went back to Paris 30 year, for the first time 30 years after moving to Australia and didn't much care for it because it wasn't as good as the real Paris, you know, the one that was still in his brain. And that's often how migrant communities feel about you know, they're stuck in a little bubble from the past uh, exactly. while their homeland evolves. But I want, to get to, I want to get to some of your thoughts about what's underpinning all of this because it's, it's really interesting. You talk about a sort of a paradigm uh, which you call an essentialist paradigm that the people who are well-meaning uh, usually white western uh, left-wingers uh, inhabit in order to think that it's the right thing to do to create these kinds of parallel systems for minorities in western democracies what is the essentialist paradigm it's um i would say a paradigm of thinking that has become characteristic of western academic post-colonial and post-modern discourses. And, and I'm not saying that all post-modern and post-colonial uh, um, researchers uh, um, exhibit this essentialist kind of feature, but you see it's so dominating, um, even in the academic sphere, but it reflects on the policies that we're seeing. What do I mean with that? Um, I see 
features, four features. On the one hand, you have uh, a tendency to look at multiculturalism not in the manner as a lived experience. You and I, regardless of our color, religious, uh, or yeah, religion, um, regardless of um, what you might call differences, we, we accept each other um, on an equal basis of respect and we live together. We live together. No, if you look at the essentialist paradigm, the idea is in fact, more, we're talking about multiculturalism as a political process, one that put us or set us into boxes and define policies accordingly. So if I'm using myself uh, as an example, I'm Ilham Mana, an academic um, of, um, I, I actually ticks all the boxes according uh, to this form of identity politics. Um, I'm woman, I'm Muslim, uh, and I'm brown. Okay, the three boxes. But you don't see me as Ilham the academic. You don't see me as Ilham who may in fact not act in the manner that you expect a Muslim woman um, to act. Even a Muslim woman with a headscarf, you would have a certain kind of perception of how she should behave, she should behave, or what, she, what you expect her to want. Uh, that's not the case uh, with the essentialist. Um, one, in fact, insists we are members of groups and member, members of oppressed groups, if I may mm -hmm. add this. And as an oppressed group, we have to be protected and in a way um, takes the agencies of the individual um, within each of these um, boxes. Um, and yet funnily, sorry, Alham, to interrupt, but I'm just noticing that it's interesting that, that your status as, an, as a quote-unquote oppressed minority leads the white saviour academic to treat you in a certain way and want to protect you as a, uh, let's say, a Muslim, and yet... In so doing, they might actually be throwing you into, throwing you at the mercy of misogynistic members of your own community who have less respect for your rights as a woman than the left-wing academic who claims to be standing up for you does. And at the same time, that's the, the problem with the group rights, because that's another feature of this essentialist uh, paradigm, that they insist as a group, I belong to the Muslim, as a group, we have certain rights. And that means this, and this uh, ties rather well with this idea of like, let's apply Islamic law in order to protect the rights of this religious group. But look at this Islamic law that you want to apply. See how it reflects on the lives of women, on children, men, of, men and women of, dif of different sexual orientation persons who believe in different um, religious uh, who may not be even Muslims, who would like to have different, um, um, who are free to choose or not to choose to be religious or not to be religious, to have a religion or not to have a religion. All of these um, are impacted by this very Islamic law that you're telling me I have to apply. And while they're doing that, they also, in a way, you said, you said it, they even take, take, they, 
they look at these laws without its context. It's as if they are taking us from our context. Look at uh, this social context. Look in the Middle Eastern countries. How many men and women are standing today fighting for changes in these laws? I mean, the agency, it's there in many of these men and women in, in these countries. And yet we come here and it's as if it's something uh, solid, made, crafted, and you can cut and paste. And that, that has consequences. That's the problem. The most important feature as well, and that, that brings, that ties well with the fact that you bring laws, you know they are violating the dignity and rights of the individual with impunity. And yet um, a cultural relativist form of approach tells you, well, that's their laws. This is the way we see it as violating. They don't see it. Well, guess what? Look at all the soap operas in Arabic. When they talk about these laws, they show you the pain of the woman. They show you the pain of the woman. So if you think that humans may feel pain differently, think again. Just try to live under such laws and tell me afterwards. Elam, some some people people in the in in the West who regard themselves as being pro-Muslim, who regard themselves as being on the side of uh, Muslim minorities, whether they're Muslims themselves or not, will respond to what you're saying frequently by saying something like, this is a caricature of Islam. Of course, there are extremes in every society. We have sexism in the West. We have extremists in the West. We have religious fanatics like Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber. We have the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, We have, uh, you know, Texas passing laws preventing women from having abortions. There there are, of course, extremes. You can't generalize about Muslims. Most Muslims uh, lead perfectly normal lives, and uh, there's no reason to demonize Islam in such a way by singling it out as being uniquely uh, sexist. What's the response to that? It's a very good question. And I'm not trying to demonize uh, Muslims. This is what I'm trying to say. I'm just saying, stop reducing people to their religious identity. Look at them in their diversity. As I say, why don't you look to, at me uh, uh, as a Yemeni, an Egyptian, with my national identity, instead of the Muslim? And at the same time, address the fact that, yes, there are laws, religious laws, that infringe on the human rights of uh, those who belong to these to this very country uh, or um, very uh, uh, religion address the fact that we're talking about um, communities that are diverse and yet you insist on reducing them in, in treating them as one block it's as if as if um, South Asian, look at the South Asian context, for instance, the South Asian Muslims in the UK. Um, They come from Bangladesh, from India, from Pakistan, even those from Pakistan. Um, They are divided along um, regional, linguistic and sectarian lines. And yet we insist on look at them without addressing the differences 
the diversity uh, in their um, um, in their identities, um, mm. and at the same time, I'm just insisting that one should look at um, what is taking place in Middle Eastern societies about the action, the civil society actors who are trying to change these laws, uh, those who are standing um, to harassment, sexual harassment, uh, those who are trying to also change perception uh, to women and look at these countries and you realize that what you're telling me that we are here doesn't really add up to what we are witnessing in these society. And this I mean, brings the final, the final feature of the essentialist, the one that is the most important one. It's the white man, white woman's burden. This is the feeling of uh, this guilt that, um, that you see so featured in this uh, paradigm. When, when, when so ashamed of the colonial past, of the wrongdoings that took place, and you have a lot of problems that took place, uh, and pain that was caused by colonial um, periods. But that shame, that guilt, translate into um, attempting to be paternalistic and maternalistic towards what they consider as the oppressed uh, group. And, and that makes discussion very difficult, very difficult. The, there's so much to address there, but I just want to make one point about, since you mentioned South Asian Muslims, it, it made me think also of a countervailing force to your anecdote about the quest for liberalism in the Arab world, which is the impact that Arab Islam has had on Asian Islam. So Indonesia, the world's most populous Muslim country and Australia's closest big neighbour, when I would backpack around Indonesia as a teenager, uh, the form of Islam there was very moderate, uh, women seemed very self-expressed, and today you can see more headscarves, more veils, more burqas, more, uh, I mean, people reading Arabic texts, which is completely alien to Indonesians, you know, being funded a lot by Saudi money and by a more extreme version of Islam. What do you make of that countervailing force inside Islam, which is extremifying things around the Muslim world? Yeah, and that brings us uh, to, to the issue of Islamism uh, in its different forms. Um, you're very much right. Um, if you look at uh, uh, Indonesia, if you look at Egypt uh, in the 60s and the 70s, you would have seen a different picture than what we're seeing today. Um, and here we bring uh, the political um, dimension. We're talking about an ideology, a political ideology that is based on a fundamentalist interpretation of religion. And that um, it's a far-right uh, political ideology, a religious far-right uh, political ideology called Islamism. And this ideology was very important due to political um, factors during the Cold War, 
uh, during the Cold War, um, if I talk about my region, the Middle the Arab Middle East, uh, during that Cold War, you actually you can see countries allying with the Soviet unions and countries allying with the United States, and some regimes that were facing opposition from movements that were leftist in nature. So the mean, the mean to face these ideology was Islamism from the perspective of these regimes, including the United States, which worked together with Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. From their perspective, we were facing an ideological communist threat, leftist threat. Um, within the Arab context, it was a pan-Arab leftist uh, threat. And we're using uh, a religion, a religion from their perspective. But what they had was a political ideology and they didn't take, for instance, Sufism. That's a very esoteric, beautiful form of Islam. Instead, they, they took a new fundamentalist one, a reactionary um, interpretation of Islam. The one that comes from uh, the heart um, of Saudi Arabia, it's, um, it's called Wahhabi Salafi Islam, uh, named after its founder. But at the same time, if you look at the South Asian context in Pakistan, they used also the interpretation of their own version of a new fundamentalist um, movement called Diubandi, also named after uh, the seminary that was teaching um, this line of Islam uh, in the 18th and 19th century. So the result was this. I mean, these movements, I'm talking right now, specifically these new fundamentalist movements, they were modern, but fringe. Fringe in the sense that were not really embraced by the majority of Muslim um, uh, um, majority countries. Due this, to this political factor, the state mainstreamed them. Mainstreamed them in the manner by which it gave a much bigger platform uh, to uh, their preachers, uh, changing the curriculums, uh, changing the way religion is being taught. Um, and, and even if you look at Yemen, for instance, in the 70s, before the curriculums were changed, um, there was one class every week about ethics, inspired of Islamic religion. Uh, respect your parents, love your neighbors, don't steal, be a nice person. And after the coalition that took place, specifically at the end of the 70s, and with the rise um, of the influence of Muslim Brotherhood, that's a political Islamist movement, you saw a change in the curriculum to seven hours, unfortunately, of an interpretation that is literally is a fundamentalist interpretation of, of religion. And I remember when I'm, and I came back from Morocco, um, uh, I was 16 years old, went to high school in, uh, in Sana'a. In the religious classes that I uh, learned there, they were telling me that if I don't pray five times, I will be killed. 
I deserve to be killed. Um, they, the way religion has been taught to us, it was not a message of love. It was a message of control, hatred, hatred, because it's not only me that I basically, the, 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 um, the, the rules don't only apply to me, the rules also insist that I treat those who do not share the same interpretation, I'm not even saying the same religion, uh, they should be treated by me differently due to their religious uh, uh, practices or religious identity. And that changed a lot. And you see that in the manner by which Indonesia, Malaysia today, uh, the discourses that you hear, the, the most visible feature of it, because when they start, they start with women. And in Afghanistan, you've seen right now, you saw Taliban just came. What was the first thing they did? Uh, you have to wear, um, uh, they have their um, dressing code. They are segregating, segregating men and women, erasing the face, uh, the faces of humans from uh, uh, from the walls. This is the Ubandi Islam. This is really a new fundamentalist Islam, and that fringe fundament, new fundamentalist interpretation uh, became mainstream because of these. Um, of this political factor because of these states. And here, in the, here in the West, and Alhamdulillah, I just want to make a connection that you make in your book, uh, Women and, and Sharia Law, which is that the this interpretation of Islam, this Islamist interpretation of Islam, insofar as it takes Islamic law as a given and as synonymous with Sharia, and insofar as it regards all Muslims as being homogenous, and insofar as it regards uh, Muslims as people for whom religion is the most important thing in their lives, these are the same beliefs that Western leftists have when the Western leftists are introducing things like Sharia courts in the UK. <laughs> yes, isn't that interesting? Right? It's amazing. You made the point, not me. I'm just quoting you. <laughs> isn't that interesting, really? It's that instead of taking the most... Because, and that's here, again, how you reduce groups um, or uh, individuals into their group identity and thinking they, you put them into boxes. And instead of addressing the fact that this is, I mean, Islamic tradition is very diverse. I mean, me living in different countries of Islamic tradition uh, has enabled me to see that diversity. Yemen is not Morocco, Morocco is not Syria, Syria is not Egypt. And yet we insist on treating them, or like Iran, unfortunately with the Mullah, with the Iranian uh, regime after the, uh, the Islamic revolution, you had a different Iran than the one that I experienced during the Shah mm, Iran time. 
So that diversity doesn't seem to uh, to be relevant no. in the discussion and of the Elam, what do you make of the the almost pathological fixation on the headscarf in the past 10, 20 years in the West? Uh, it, it has become a symbol, you know, in the Women's March in the United States after Donald Trump was elected, uh, everyone wearing Muslim headscarves, you know, non-Muslims as a way of gesturing their inclusiveness, I suppose, to, uh, and their opposition to uh, someone who they regarded as being an Islamophobic bigot. But it has come to represent some sort of female liberation, which seems wholly unhinged from the way that it is used in conservative Muslim societies. Yes, and, and, and that's the problem, because context matter. And, and again, this tendency to take um, an issue and tear it from its social context. That's the way it's been done. So we're talking about a headscarf. Headscarf, um, you have to look at it within the context of how it has been used within uh, Muslim-majority countries, how um, women liberation movements in the 19th century the beginning of the 20th century, were using this very symbol as a mean to liberate themselves. So what that, does that mean? It's just like they will burn it. Okay, they will burn it. And that's not only in Egypt, that's not only in Syria, that's not only uh, in Tunisia, no, that's even um, in South of Yemen. You have well-documented cases where basically women uh, activists, in order to show we are moving away of a patriarchal um, uh, conception of rights, we are basically burning uh, this symbol. Comes political Islam. Political Islam, uh, the founder of Muslim Brotherhood, that's the womb of political Islam. Muslim Brotherhood was uh, founded in Egypt in 1928 by um, uh, a teacher, primary school teacher, Hassan al-Banna. Um, and he, if you look at the way he used the woman, he was in fact reacting, not only to the West as everybody is insisting, not only, no, uh, to Kamal Ataturk in Turkey. Kemal Ataturk was the leader that came after the end of the uh, Ottoman Empire. He abolished the caliphate. He insisted on the separation of state and religion. And he too used the woman and her body as a symbol for his vision, for his project. Hassan al-Banna was against the abolition of the caliphate, was against separation of state and religion. For him, religion should be a political project. That means society should be guided and ruled and controlled by uh, religious laws and was against, at the same time, uh, the liberation of women as Kamal Ataturk was pushing for. Again, just like Burkiba in Tunisia, um, Kamal Ataturk was no feminist. He just saw the woman as a tool for social change, okay? So comes Hassan al-Banna, what does he tell us? No, we have a different um, model, and the woman 
is very central to it because she will create the new Muslim, the one that will create that Islamic state. And there is um, dress code for that woman. And from his perspective, it should be like this and like this. And that's why you, you immediately, you can tell if a person, um, if a woman is wearing the headscarf out of an Islamist belief, or if she's doing that because of tradition, because of religious belief, religious belief, or because of economic reason, you can say, you can tell. But that political movement was again fringe until the 70s, until Sadat, Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt, decided that he needs to uh, counter his leftist um, competitors by depending on the Islamist movements, including the Muslim Brotherhood. And with that, if you look at the pictures, the albums of the pictures, at the end of the 70s, you will hardly see a woman with a headscarf. Mm -hmm. uh, today, the majority are wearing the headscarf. The majority are wearing the headscarf. And that doesn't mean that women are wearing the headscarf because they're Islamists. Please understand what I'm saying. Uh, I'm just saying that for the Islamist movement, this headscarf is central for their own project. Bring this discussion here yes. and, and you realize that this whole, this whole context is really absent from the discussion. The fact that you have women, yes, I know uh, uh, half of my family is wearing headscarves. And I know that you have women who are wearing that by their own um, uh, will, but you also have those who are being pushed to wear it, whether they liked it or not. You also have women who are being um, forced uh, to wear it with grave consequences. And that is absent from this whole discussion. That power dimension, that patriarchal dimension, that political dimension seems to be absent from the discussion. And I'm just insisting, look at the issues in its complexity and stop turning this because these nice, with all due respect, um, feminist, uh, Western feminist women who come and they basically wear the headscarf in solidarity with, with Muslim women. Well, tell me why don't you do same campaigns for those women who are forced to wear it? Just as you're wearing it in solidarity with those who are um, being attacked because they're wearing it, do the same for those who are being beaten to wear it forced to wear it. And without that complexity, just basically naive essentialist. Let's talk about supporting the Muslim communities in the West because <clears throat> there are there is oppression, there is bias, there is prejudice against against Muslim communities in uh, in Western countries. There is a, a justifiable desire amongst progressive people to ensure that Muslim communities feel welcome, that, they don't, that they're not subjected to harassment or, or prejudice. And yet, as you've been saying, 
that can sometimes bleed into a support for the most reactionary elements in the Muslim communities and a kind of misguided essentialism about those communities. And if you, if you try to do both, if you try to take the best of both worlds and split the baby in half and say, we want to support the Muslim women, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to support what the Muslim community claims to want for itself, because maybe it's just a very loud imam who's actually quite sexist, who's telling us what the community wants. So we have to sideline the community in the interests of the 15-year-old girl who lives in that community here in Australia who might not want to wear the headscarf but might risk ostracization from her family if she chooses not to, how do you do that without coming across as being a bigot? <laughs> yes, it's a very important question. Um, and it's a very uh, difficult question. But I will start with something that you, sa you said. Um, let me ask the question, who's speaking in the name of Muslim communities in their diversity? And very often you see organizations, well-organized, flushed in resources, and they insist that they are the sole speakers of their Muslim communities. And if you look closer, you see political dimension here, where some, and I'm not saying all, but some of these organizations, in fact, are affiliated with one form or another of Islamism, either political Islam or new fundamentalist movements. And when they demand, they make their demands, they make their Islamist demands, but they make it in the name of the whole of the communities. And that would lead to consequences, because the first thing that uh, usually policymakers, because that, that's the problem that I see from the perspective of policymakers here in Western uh, democratic uh, countries. Policymakers, they want an easy way out. I need someone who speaks in the name of these Muslim communities, so we make the good policies and we are really treating our minorities in with good conscience, what they want. Instead, what they do is that they empower such movements. They empower their agenda in terms of giving them um, the power to dictate what children are being taught in their religious classes. And very often, these classes will tell you that the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood is a saint. That the founder of the Jamaat al-Islamiyya, al-Mawdudi, um, uh, is a holy person someone who tells you I need an Islamic state and any state that does not apply Sharia is not a legal state is being taught as the role model. It changes the perception. It tells you that women are minors in perpetual need of male guardianship. This is the outcome because it in a way it teaches children a different model than the one that they are living in. Actually, a model that stands against this democratic liberal sitting that they're living in. And indirectly, this cooperation, if I may say, lead to communities clo closing up. We've seen that in the United Kingdom. 
We see it in other countries, in Sweden, for instance. And that leads to closed communities. And unfortunately, by trying, by treating them as groups and selecting um, leaders for these groups to speak in their name, you end up empowering the most reactionary elements within these diverse communities. Mm. And uh, you end up with a situation when, when um, a demand that children, girls, should cover their hair when they go to the school becomes, this is a religious demand. Uh, look at the schools in other countries, Muslim majority countries. When did we start to have that? When did we start to have that? And you see the political connection, the Islamist dimension to it. And how much, Elham, sometimes a certain accommodation with uh, Islamist or conservative Muslim thinking is necessary in order to bring the Muslim community into the into the daily life of a Western democracy. I'm thinking of, for example, swimming pools in Australia. Some of the public schools have, uh, public pool, swimming pools have created uh, one afternoon a week where there's a section that is covered where just Muslim girls can swim. And so they don't have to see any male bodies. They don't have to see any other Australians. They can be covered and they can be protected. Of course, that causes a debate. Are you pandering to... Uh, chauvinism, misogyny, sexism, perpetuating ancient uh, gender differences? Or are you using the only tool you have to try to take these girls and make them part of the Australian lifestyle where we all love going to swimming pools and swimming because we're a sunny country who loves to go to pools? Which one is it? Okay. It's, um, it's important. All I'm trying to say here is that it is important not to work with Islamists. That's all I'm saying, okay? I understand you have religious uh, Muslims. I understand that you have religious Muslims. And these religious Muslims, they do have their own uh, religious demands. The question for me is, does accommodation leads to infringement and violation of human rights, or this accommodation can be done in a plural context? Let me put it to you this way, and maybe this will be uh, a way to get into okay. it. I saw a story on the news uh, which was about Australia's first uh, surf life-saving team of Muslim girls who were, uh, you know, between the ages of maybe 10, you know, 8 and 12 or something, and they had uh, they had headscarf, uh, they had full body uh, swimming outfits, and they were undertaking this very traditional Australian activity of surf lifesaving, running along the beach, doing exercises and swimming and so on. And they felt liberated because they came from conservative Muslim households. Now, one part of me <laughs> thinks that's fabulous. One part of me thinks, well. What I'm asking, I suppose, is how should I feel about the spin that the journalist was putting on it, which was to present it as a, as a story of liberation. It's a story yeah. of these young girls <laughs> who are being liberated because they are fighting back against bigotry in Australia. They're fighting against Islamophobia and they're expressing their truest, deepest 
sense of their of themselves at the age of eight by covering up all of by covering themselves completely. That, is this a joyful? <laughs> am I supposed to share in this joy? And that brings me also my mixed feeling, very mixed feeling about this, because on the one hand, um, I can see how this eight years old girl is very happy to do this, you know, very happy to be allowed to do this, knowing that she won't be able to do it if she didn't cover herself. Okay. And, and this dimension is the missing one. It's the missing one because uh, as you said, the media is like spinning it out. And this is like against our bigotry, our um, discrimination, Islamophobic reaction. But look at it from the perspective of this child, who is a child, and yet she has to cover herself as if she is um, a sexual temptation of source. And that shows the problematic side of it. If I cannot do an action unless I do, I do it in this framework, there is something wrong with the context that tells this girl you have to cover yourself. There's something wrong. And without seeing this power dimension, this patriarchal dimension, and at the same time that most likely Islamists are the one or new fundamentalists are the one who imposes on a child this code of dressing, um, we're missing the whole picture. We are really missing the whole picture when it comes to this. And so, yes. Elam, when you talk about the different ways in which Islam expresses itself in these different communities and the richness and the complexity of these different interpretations, um, there was a whole conversation after the terrorist attacks in 2001 in the West about whether or not this is a problem with Islam, whether Islam needs a reformation, whether it needs to, to find a way to be more plural, pluralistic and so on. What do you make of that? Is, is Islam part of a problem? Mm -hmm. Okay. We certainly need Islamic reformation. We need that, okay? And I'm not the only one who's saying that. God knows we have uh, a whole, um, uh, many intellectuals, men and women from different uh, countries of Muslim majority countries who are saying that. And the discussion is taking place and it's a difficult process. It's a very difficult process because we have to raise very difficult questions about the nature of our religion, of how to move forward, of reformation. What does that mean? But your question, in fact, brings different dimension, brings different dimension. Before I talked about a political ideology, a political, a far right religious political ideology. But that ideology is religious in that it depends in its interpretation on a new fundamentalist uh, interpretation of uh, Islam. And without acknowledging this component, it becomes difficult to address the issue. Um, look at um, the recognition of many um, Arab countries after uh, ISIS, the Islamic State's rise, how they came to the conclusion that, hey guys, we've been mainstreaming this fundamentalist uh, interpretation. 
uh, we have to stop doing that. I mean, uh, in my book, The Perils of Nonviolent Islamism, I mention that important article of the information from a Kuwaiti um, uh, minister uh, who wrote an article with the title, We Are ISIS. He said, we mainstream, ma mainstreamed this interpretation in our schools, in our mosques, um, and it's time to stop that. So without, in order for us to stop radicalization, we have to understand as well, there is a religious component that has to be countered. But military interventions, and I think Afghanistan have shown us that clearly are futile. The interventions that we've seen in Iraq, the interventions that we've seen uh, uh, in Afghanistan, they just wasted a lot of resources and uh, opened a Pandora box that really reflected badly on these very societies. But at the same time, they did not really address the issue. And the issue is that you have the ideological foundation of this jihadism, of this violence. And that ideological foundation is called Islamism, a political ideology. But the political ideology is based on a religious interpretation. And without saying it and articulating the problem, we will be basically moving in circles and not crossing the boundaries of these circles. And um, yes, um, on the one hand, when it comes to this violence, to this terrorism caused uh, by Islamism, there is a very important component that has to do with this new fundamentalist uh, ideology. And that means we have to look what kind of Islam we are, be, we are teaching children under the leadership of Islamist organization. That's one component. And the general question, does Islam need reformation? Yes, Islam does need reformation because until today we are unable um, to look at our um, holy text and acknowledge the human nature. Uh, in it. And without addressing this specific point, without separating ourselves from, or without the ability of looking at these texts, these holy um, texts within their historical um, context, we will keep asking the same questions again and again and again. And let me just tell you something, because I don't want the listener or the, uh, the, the, the viewer to come out of this session feeling uh, um, pessimistic. Um, after the uprisings uh, of 2010-2011 um, in the Middle East, Today, everybody will tell you the Arab Spring, that was a catastrophe, politically maybe. But look at the consequences on a social and intellectual level, and you see something is changing. Something is really 
changing. And the discussion that are taking place, the forums, the online um, publications, the ability to access information has been important. Last week on Saturday, I was invited to an online discussion by a Yemeni professional forum. Um, we were three speakers, um, all speaking in Arabic. And we were talking about future, um, freedom, and thinking. Um, our session here, is, uh, it has the, the, the title Permission to Think, and we were permitted to think there. And I, in my talk, in Arabic, I talked about the importance of breaking these boundaries of thinking and acknowledging the human nature of Quran, of Quran, our holy book, and making sure that we basically uh, reach a conclusion um, that we can separate ourselves also um, from certain perceptions and laws um, in uh, our holy uh, books. So. What I'm trying to say is basically, even while I'm talking to you right now, I'm talking in English and Arabic, I'm saying similar. Um, mm. I'm saying the same. Well, I'm, I'm glad Alan, that, you, that you emphasize that you're saying the same thing in English and Arabic, because you also talk about it in your writing. And we can we can we can end with this because I think you can take it wherever you, you want. But you talk about how after the Charlie Hebdo uh, massacre in France, uh, the Saudis, uh, the Saudi government said, this is terrible. We don't, we oppose all of this. There is freedom of thought and freedom of speech. We, they, they did all of the necessary genuflection towards liberal ideals that you might expect them to. Came to France, the crown prince or whoever it was, and paid respects and marched with the French president. And in that very same week, you make the point that there was a, a blogger, probably more than one, a, a free thinker in Saudi Arabia, who was being publicly flogged in the town square for, right. for having the wrong beliefs to, about, about Islam. So is it possible to move to another stage of Islamic enlightenment or reformation without doing away with those power structures at the top in yeah. Saudi Arabia and similar countries? And if so, or if not, what could we in the West be doing to do better? No, um, I'll tell you something. It's, uh, uh, that was 2015, um, move forward, so 2021, and you see things are changing also in the very country that you mentioned, Saudi Arabia. You see um, a movement away from this reactionary interpretation uh, of Islam. Now, the question for me, uh, moving away, uh, because you see a form, the development in Saudi Arabia right now, um, has taken a shape where the suffocating social religious control that was imposed uh, by the regime uh, of this very religious fundamentalist uh, interpretation uh, ceased, ceased. Uh, the things that were imposed, segregation between the sexes, uh, imposition of uh, either uh, niqab or uh, burqa or uh, headscarf, that ends. Um, more uh, liberal freedoms is taken, um, is being given. 
Now, for me, the key issue is when Saudi Arabia, through its Salafi arm, that is the World Muslim League, when it um, propagate this new line religiously. So the problem is this World Muslim League build mosques, provide the books, provide the training for the imams. And that happens in Australia, that happens in other uh, Western democratic uh, countries. For me, in order for these changes to be really authentic, sustainable, and believable, I need to see the books that are being taught to the children. Are you still promoting the writing of the Wahhabi uh, founders? And specifically, um, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, he has a very famous book, Tawheed. Are you promoting the writings of the Salafi Saudi leaders, religious leaders? If you're doing that, then you're contradicting your own policies. Right, but they're Salafists. Of course, they're going to be using those books. Yeah, that's the problem. That's the problem. And that means, on the one hand, unlike in country, in Western democratic countries, to make laws that stop the flood, the financial um, um, resources that are flooding these organizations or mosques. Stop it. Make a stop to it. And then afterwards, when it comes to, because as a Muslim, this is like, now I'm Swiss of Arab origin, but Islam is my religion. It's my faith. I would like to go to a mosque where I could even trust the imam or the religious classes they provide to teach my, my daughter. Um, I refrain from doing that because I don't have that trust. Mm. Okay. So, in so would, order you, would, you create an, would you create an independent funding source for Muslim theology in Western countries to cut them off from Saudi Arabia? That's what I'm, what, that's what I'm actually um, um, demanding, is that we need to develop uh, th- uh, at the universities certain kind of colleagues, uh, theology colleagues, that brings the best of this tradition and train imams and create religious teaching curriculums for children. We need the states um, in Western democracies to make sure that this is being done in a manner that um, is not subject to abuse by fundamentalism or Islamists. And, uh, and that, that is yet to be uh, done in a manner that you could say, this country is implementing this um, model and we could uh, follow suit. This is important. We need policy measures that make sure that um, the religious um, teaching, the imams, are being trained and taught in a manner that provide a religious, um, that covers the religious demands uh, of those who would like to believe, but in a manner that stops this influence from the outside and changes the nature of people. 
Good luck with that project, Elham. <laughs> thank you <laughs> for articulating it so eloquently and thank you for joining us. It's lovely to meet you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Zepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.